How many of you have ever gotten to the end of the week and found, oh my goodness, I've got everything done? <laughs> you laugh? <laughs> Either you need some more things to do or you've like anything like me. There's letters unanswered or emails unanswered. There's all sorts of stuff which I wish they could have gotten done. I would commend to you a very valuable little booklet if you're interested. It's called Tyranny of the Urgent. Tyranny of the Urgent is by Charles Hummel from InterVarsity Press. It's only eight pages long, but it'll almost knock you out with its power. That book is a small booklet with a very big fist. Cost you a dollar sixty. Download it to your Kindle. Its message is very uncomplicated, but it's direct, and it's a warning to us all, which I highly recommend. Amanda, Lee, buy that book. Young people, buy that book. It will set you off on the right track in your life. Here in one sentence is the warning. Don't let the urgent take the place of the important in your life. Now I just want you to forget all the crises in your lives and all the things that scream at you for your attention. I want to just take a few moments where I want to ask you to ask yourself what is really important to you? What is really important? One of the ways I find that's really a good way of Analogising that, well, it's got some value. It's not the best. There are other ways, but you've all probably heard of the illustration. Well, imagine today we're sitting in your funeral and your best friend's about to come up or your wife or your children are about to come up and say a little eulogy about you and what you meant as a dad and as a husband. Imagine you're sitting in the congregation the question is often asked is, what would you want them to say about you? That can help distill what's important. And I just want to throw one other thing in there for free. In the long run, now listen carefully to this, in the long run, Relationships will always out-trump accomplishments. But the world doesn't often reward relationships. It says, get after the accomplishments, get after the position, get after the positions, get after the power. Now, let me phrase it a different way. What is your top priority? That's a very important question. Because it's 
Another way of saying, where are you going? You've got a lot of energy. You've got time as an equal opportunity employer. Every one of us has 168 hours a week. Doesn't matter whether you're Bill Gates or Joe Schmo. We've all got the same, equal. We may have different talents and opportunities and resources, but we all are equal when it comes to time. How you deploy your time is critical because your time is your life. You waste your time, you waste your life. You don't know where you're going, you're wandering aimlessly. The Bible actually says that. Without the vision, the people wander aimlessly. What's God's vision for your life? Not what do I want to do? What does God want me to do? Because ultimately, when all this is wrapped up and it's all gone, what will really matter is did I do what God called me to? It's a very big question. But it's one that we need to focus on today. Especially in amongst all of our problems. Christians are called by God to make an impact in the world. But isn't quite sure which way's up. To do that, to make an impact for God, we need to understand clearly our priorities in amongst all of the challenges in this world. Now, Paul, who we've been visiting with for the last few weeks, wrote a letter to a group of Christians following his visit with them at Thessalonica. That's a little place in Greece. Still there today. You can go there today. You can go there. Now, the ministry in Thessalonica had begun calmly enough, but it ended up with Paul and Silas leaving under the cover of darkness because a miserable, riotous mob of Jewish leaders, and the Bible describes worthless fellows, were attempting to turn the city against them with slander, gossip, and actually physical violence. Now at the beginning of the letter, after we've had to do a quick exit, Paul starts with this. And if you have your Bibles, today the basis of our message is going to be 1 Thessalonians chapter, one, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 through 13. But I'm going to pick it up at verse 1. And he says this, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. Now, although he, Paul had not stayed with the, the, the Thessalonians very long, and had to leave in a rush, which seemed unplanned, his coming was not wasted effort. That's one thing we want to be careful of, wasting effort. Because only so much energy go around, right? And after declaring this fact, Paul then pinpoints the focus of his ministry and his life in Thessalonica. And he sets out four essential priorities. And they are valid today as much for Paul and every church and every believer today. And I want to drill down on these four distinct priorities today. No matter what. Four priorities for living. The first of which, to be meaningful, our lives must be biblical. They must be biblical. So despite severe suffering for sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, Paul and Silas have been in the previous town, they've been beaten with rods and thrown into prison and finally driven out by the Philippian mob. In fact, he says this here. And picking up from verse two. But after we had already suffered, 
Now what that really means, guys, if you go back and read it, he'd been beaten with rods, wood rods, and had been mistreated in Philippi. That's a little distracting to say the least. As you know, we had boldness in God to speak the gospel amid such opposition. So in the face of opposition, they still stayed the course with boldness. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by the way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted. In other words, you're approved to be entrusted with the Word of God, with the Gospel. This was their commission and this is why they presented the good news in the face of persecution. Why? Because they've been entrusted by God. So even though the persecution is still coming, they were entrusted and they were going forward boldly. So we speak not pleasing men, as pleasing men, but God who examines the heart. Now, when we read this, it makes us aware of the constant barrage of the urgent situations now that can easily derail us and put us off or distract us from the gospel, from the main cause, from the very cause where God has called them. These urgent situations have been pounding away on Paul's mind. But he made sure that his life and his ministry were firmly fixed on the importance of delivering the Scriptures and the Gospel to these people. Now, did you catch a few of these thoughts? He made sure his life and ministry were firmly fixed on the importance of the Scriptures. Let's look at this. Verse 2. When he spoke amidst the strong current of public opposition... It was the gospel of God he shared. So here he is going against the tide. Setting an example for us, you may feel socially awkward sometimes sharing the truth of God's word. It did not stop Paul. He was biblical and he held to the cause with great boldness. Don't let social awkwardness or embarrassment back you into a corner. Two, the very foundation of his being was not error. It wasn't impurity or deceit, but rather the truth of the Scriptures. Still biblical, biblical base. Verse three, that was. And three, furthermore, he considered the Word of God as something very special, exquisitely special, something that had been entrusted to him and he was almost trembling with the thought of the responsibility of delivering this. It gave him such security though and such confidence that he didn't feel the need to compromise and become a people pleaser. Or as Ben Carson puts it well, politically correct. Friends, wanting to gain the approval of others will nearly always distract us from pleasing God and sharing God's word. It may involve social comfort and rejection. Get used to that. See, we used to be in a church where we have a full band and people who can sing. Early Christians met in a cave. With no musical instruments, they just sang with their voices. We are so mamby-pamby these days. 
It may involve social comfort, discomfort and rejection, but pray the Holy Spirit will give you the courage and the boldness and look for opportunities within your family and with your work colleagues to talk about Christ. Look for them. Just like Paul did. Even amongst opposition, he kept at it. So the first priority and the most significant priority we can cultivate is to make the Scriptures a a focus and a priority in our lives. Now, it is a biblical mentality that is the secret to surviving the aimlessness in our day. Unfortunately though, if we're extremely authentic, it's one of the first things that's pressured by the tyranny of the urgent, our time in God's Word. See, being committed to a biblical mentality and lifestyle is so old, it's new. Notice at the end of verse four. As we begin to soak up the truths of God's Word, he goes on and he says that God examines the heart. So he says, for the Word of God is living. It is active. It's doing something. Sharper than any double-edged sword. It cuts both ways. It penetrates even to the dividing of the soul and the spirit. By the way, the Bible talks sidebar, body, soul, spirit. We are trichotomous, just like God is. Penetrates to the dividing of the soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes, which we talked about last week, of the heart. See, the Word of God penetrates through our outer facade. We're all good at acting. And role playing and impression management. But the Word of God reveals what lies deeply inside. Nothing in all creation is hidden from the sight of God. His audit is complete. Everything the Bible says in Hebrews 4 is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Everything, every thought, every action. Very descriptive, isn't it? Very descriptive. See, the principles and the precepts of Scripture touch what no surgeon's scalpel can come close to. The soul and the spirit. Thoughts and attitudes. The very essence of our being. And God uses His truths from His Word to help shape us and clean us up, to pinpoint things that are wrong and to encourage us and to mature us in our walk with Him. So, priority number one, be biblical. Let's take this to heart. Let's determine that we're not going to allow the tyranny of the urgent The emails, what's happened on Facebook overnight to get its first jab. That's putting God first, not Facebook first, not Twitter first, not email first, not the news first. Put God first. This is where the rubber meets the road, the discipline. And God gives you both the desire and the will and the power to do that. So first and foremost, 
let's determine that we're not going to allow the tyranny of the urgent to steal from us those vitally important moments with our God and His Word. And also to share His Word. His Word in our place of mission, which is where you're going tomorrow morning. That is your mission field. Tomorrow morning. So, second priority, in the same part of 1 Thessalonians, Paul makes us clear that we, as Christians, are to be authentic. Listen to the way Paul talks himself. For a brief moment, Paul shifts the emphasis from the message, which was the gospel, the truth of God's word, to the messenger. So now we're moving from the message to the messenger. He says, for we never came with flattering speech. In other words, greasing you up. As you know, nor with a pretext of greed. We weren't trying to suck money out of you. God is our witness. Nor did we seek any glory from men, either for, from you or from others. Even though as apostles of Christ, and there's a definition of apostle, there are three criteria to be an apostle in the Scriptures that are clearly laid out. We might have asserted our authority. He had the option, but he chose not to. This man's real. He was so secure that he could peel off the masks which normally hide, people hide behind, all the cover-ups. And he stood vulnerable before God and others. And it's a clear example here of Paul's humility and his authenticity. Now, even though he was an apostle, a genuine first century bigwig. I mean, you couldn't get much bigger than that. He did not push for the limelight or grandstand. He consciously resisted being a power abuser. And Paul was a kind of leader that didn't take unfair advantage of his role as an apostle. Of top priority to Paul, right alongside being a strong believer and proponent and advocate of the Scriptures, was being authentic. Now Webster's Dictionary Term uh, defines the term authentic by suggesting three things that authentic is not. It is not imaginary, it is not false, and it is not imitation. Today, we would say that authentic means being not phony, free of the standard hype that often accompanies religious types to whom everything is fantastic, there's a Mac miracle in every box and everything's incredible. Paul says, let's work hard to be real. This means that we are free to question, we are free to admit failure or weakness or to confess wrong, to declare truth. Now, Paul gets after this authenticity in preaching, specifically in 2 Corinthians 4, Two, second half of that verse, NIV version. He says, when we preach, we preach by setting forth the truth plainly. We commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So he spoke clearly. And these verses particularly are meaning 
that there were other people who were not speaking clearly. And he was contrasting the way that Paul, he, he preached with the methods of some of the travelling preachers who had come to Corinth to seduce the church. Instead of a straightforward presentation of the truths of the gospel and sticking to that, they, as you read, were using tricks to captivate their audience and thereby distorting the word of God. These preachers had specifically sought a platform to which to speak, deceive, and fleece the flock. Paul and his fellow evangelists, on the other hand, had rejected all that trickery and underhanded methods and was presenting himself authentic. When a person's authentic, he or she doesn't have to make a big impression. Don't have to do that. All look super duper pious. I found that authentic people normally enjoy life more than those who are putting on a facade. They don't take themselves too seriously, but they take God very seriously. We get that the wrong, the wrong way. We take ourselves very seriously and God not seriously enough. They think more freely because they've got nothing to prove and no big image to protect. And they have no fear of being found out because they're not hiding anything. And that's tremendously freeing. So, one, let's make the Bible our foundation. Never Surrender that ground, ever. If you haven't already gone to defendinginerrancy.org, you can register your commitment to that stand with Dr. Geisler, myself, Dr. Bill Roach. Because I tell you what, across the world right now, there's a, the Bible says in the last days there will come people who will seek for themselves teachers who will basically scratch their ears, give them things they want to hear and surrender the Bible. If you're a member of New Hope Community Church, can I highly implore you to go to defendinginerrancy.org and register your support of that. So let's make the Bible our foundation as we apply its insights and guidelines. Let's also cultivate that style that is authentic. So in other words, what you are at home is the same as you are at work, is the same as you are at church, is the same as you are on the golf course or the squash court or wherever you are. Authenticity. Now in doing so, we'll need to watch our attitude, which is a very next priority, which is be gracious. Paul deals with this third priority in 1 Thessalonians where he writes of the value of being gracious. Picking it up from verse seven, but we proved, now listen to, the, listen to the gracious tone in this. We proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. You ever seen that? You'll know what tenderness is all about. Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, which we just talked about, the biblical, but also our own lives, the authenticity, because you have become very dear to us. Hear those endearing terms? For you recall, brethren, our labour and our hardship, how we worked day and night so as not to be a burden to any of you. 
we proclaim to you the gospel of God. See, it's coming in again. The gospel of God. You are our witnesses. And so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved towards you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. See that? Fatherly, gracious, motherly, gracious nature. What a gracious and tolerant spirit this guy had. This man was both approachable and tender. Notice the word pictures. He cared for others as a worsening mother. Verse seven. You can't get much more of a picture of care. He dealt with their needs as a father. Verse 11. He had compassion. Now of high priority to this capable and brilliant man was a gracious and a compassionate attitude. And it's a greatly needed priority today is an attitude or disposition that is characterised by grace. 2 Peter 3.18 says this, grow in the grace and the knowledge, there's the word of God, of our Lord Jesus Christ and Saviour. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Now, he is saying that there is no place for harshness like that. He's saying you can have conviction and you can have firm commitment to the truth but not harshly. He pleads for the thread of grace to be woven through the garment of truth. Don't buy the idea that it's either or. Sometimes some of the most ungracious things I've seen have been when people think they have a truth and they proceed to club to death anybody who doesn't agree with them. We need the thread of grace woven through the garment of truth. Our world, friends, is hungry. Hurting humanity longs for and deserves the message of truth presented in an attractive, in a gracious, gentle wrapping. How do you do that? Well, at work, I was just completely, I was just listening yesterday to a, to a stunningly good man. His name is Dr. John Lennox. And one of the ways he encourages, and I would encourage you to think about this, and he gives some good examples, is by at work asking questions. Ask questions until they run out of answers and then they start to ask you, well, what do you think about this? Especially when it's thinking about the world and where it's going. What do you think about that? Very open-ended question. Don't start off with, you know, Exodus 18, 20. Thou shalt have no other gods. No, 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 no. Look at that. Look at the way Paul dealt with these philosophers at the top of Mars Hill in Greece, in Athens, actually. They're still there today. You can go to the very rock where he stood this. And he, said, and he saw all these heathen gods, which is very similar today. They're just not made of stone. They're made of metal and wood. And they have dollar signs after them. You know, just different idols. So let's not get after them. And he says, hmm, I see you men are very religious. So he was, he was gaining some common ground. He wasn't stroking the cat out the wrong way. Common ground. And some of those images, well, potentially we wouldn't want our children to see. Let me just say that. But he didn't get after that. He just said, I see you men are very religious. Then he said, hmm, see this one here. Oh, then, sorry, second thing he did. Then he quoted one of their 
Epicurean poets, somebody that they knew, the language that they knew. They thought, gee, this guy knows a bit about us. So again, he built a bridge to them, second bridge. Then he said, see this one here, to the unknown God. They said, yeah. He said, let me tell you about this one. So he built a bridge and then he went after it. But he never let go of sharing the gospel at every chance he had. So, 1 Thessalonians 2.12, Paul speaks now to yet the fourth priority. And this is to be relevant. There's a direct link between talk and walk. Talk and walk. And where the world gets confused is when it sees these two things disconnected. People saying one thing and living another way. People saying thing one and espousing different values. So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you his own kingdom, into his own kingdom and glory. Now just, whoa, slow down there. There's an awful lot in that one sentence. So that you and I may live our lives, walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his kingdom. Imagine you right now, you're on the edge and you're about to step off, leaving this planet and he's calling you in there. This is reality. People talk about multiverses. I actually think there's another dimension. The Bible talks about that, supports it. There is another dimension than just molecules of motion down here. He's calling you off into this kingdom and God's glory. It's another dimension. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us, what? The word of God's message, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Paul's message always had a relevant, active ring to it. Even though the truth of the Scriptures is eternal. And by the way, you know the gospel is eternal? Before even God made the world, you look up, do a quick search on eternal gospel in the Scriptures. The cross wasn't, oops, I need to fix a problem. God knew about all that before it even started. He had it all in his plan. It's called the eternal gospel. And that's how people were saved, by the way, even under the Old Testament. That's a whole other message. Even though the truth of the Scriptures is eternal, when it's received humbly, it goes to work today. It's up to date and it's continually at work in us who believe. So the Word of God, verse 13b, which also performs its work in you who believe. Through his word, God works in our lives, transforming them, challenging, convicting, encouraging, guiding and cleansing us today. And if we want to reach our friends, we must make relevance a high priority. How will you engage your work colleagues this week? If we want to reach our friends, just like Jesus did. See, he met people as they were, not as they ought to be. He met people who were angry young men. He met blind beggars who were destitute and pathetically helpless. Real. He met proud, cocky politicians. He met loose living streetwalkers as we call them here, prostitutes. 
Jesus meant dirty, smelly, naked, demon-possessed people. And he met grieving parents. And the interesting thing to me is they all got equal love. Equal love. They hang on every one of his words. Even though, I mean, he was God for goodness sake. He could have blown them out of the water with it. I'd do anything for a few moments with Jesus face to face. Man, I've got so many questions I could bucket stick at. But he could have blown them out of the water with his, with his knowledge and his authority. But he purposely stayed on their level. Jesus was the epitome of relevance and still is. It is he who is the living Savior today. And it is we who have hauled his cross out of sight. We're concerned that judges in the land which I also belong to have hauled out the Ten Commandments from all sorts of places or any vestige of Christianity. Yet we have also hauled his cross out of sight. When was the last time we raised his cross in our workplace or in our families? It is we who have left the impression that the cross only belongs in the halls of Bible colleges. It only belongs beautifully shown beneath the shadows of stained glass and marble statues. Now I commend George MacLeod who put it this way. Listen to what he said. I simply argue that the cross be raised again. In the centre of the marketplace as well as on the steeples of churches. I am recovering the claim that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles. But on a cross between two thieves on a town garbage heap at a crossroad so cosmopolitan they had to write his title in three languages, Hebrew, Latin and Aramaic and Greek actually. And at that time, that kind of place, that's where cynics were. That's where smut and thieves cursed and soldiers gambled. He was right there in the marketplace. Because where he died, and that is what he died about. And that is where Christ's men and women ought to be. And what church people ought to be about. I want to review and wrap this up. The tyranny of the urgent will always outshout the essential nature of the important if we let it. We have to be determined not to let that happen. And the secret is establishing with God your personal priorities. Now, not, oh God, what do I want to do? God, what do you want me to do with the remaining 22 years I have on this planet? You don't know it's 22 years. It could be five. None of us know. But the point is, life is short. David put it very wisely. He said this. He said, Lord, give me wisdom 
to number my days, to count them. None of us like to do that. Because every day you put your hand in your pocket and you pull out $1, which represents a day. And there's one here today, that's good. We don't know when that runs out. But we do know everybody in this place, it will run out. It could be young. My cousin died at 17. My brother-in-law in his mid-20s. So I have a people all the way along the line. The important point is, is that whilst we're here, we say like David, Lord, give me wisdom to number my days so that I may present to you a heart of wisdom. So when I get to you, I will not have frittered my life away with trivia. So the secret is establishing those personal priorities. I have suggested for today. One, set a firm foundation that never moves. And that is be biblical. Two, apply the truth. You can sit here all day and listen to the scriptures, which you know in your heart, your spirit and conscience, what is, this is right. But if you don't do anything about it, there's a parable that you probably need to go read in Matthew 7 that talks about the man who built his house upon the rock and the one who built his house on the sand. And the scary thing that happened to me, I was 22 years old in the middle of Wellington. I was reading my Bible before I went to bed, sitting right next to this young lady on a very thin mat. And I read it and it scared the living daylights out of me. Go read it, Matthew 7. Many on that day will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy? Didn't we heal? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? And Jesus said to them, depart from me, I never knew you. I go, how can that possibly happen? It's a great wake-up call. Jesus never wastes words. He's very economical. The man who built his house on the sand and the rock both thought they would stand, but in the end, one was blessed and one was shocked. Three, develop a compassionate attitude and be gracious. And four, stay current, be relevant. Sometimes, I don't know whether you've ever seen this, somebody will be talking in the office about rugby and they're on one tone, let's call it number one. And then talk about, I don't know, what they did in the weekend. Maybe a slightly different tone, but pretty much the same tone. Then all of a sudden, if something about church comes up and God, their tone changes. And there's, whoa, it sounds so flipping funny. Keep the same tone when you share. As we begin to this, do this, Christianity becomes something more than is just worn. It's absorbed and it leeches out. It's more than just believed, it's incarnated. And if there's anything that will catch the attention of preoccupied people who are absolutely confused about what the values, the true values of things are, is it's God's truth incarnate. Paul puts it this way, we are living letters. You are sometimes the only Bible people will see. God's truth incarnate through you at work. It happened in the first century and it can happen again today. Even in a nameless world like ours. Now tomorrow, you and I will be faced with eternity of the urgent. And it has a way of eclipsing the important. 
I want to just, as the guys come, think about briefly the demands, the urgent demands on your life. Because here's the deal. I guarantee you, if you get along with God long enough and say this uh, one prayer, God, what do you want me to focus on? What do you want me to take off my plate? Because some of you are exhausted, fatigued, drained. You can't do everything. You say yes to that, you're saying no to this, which God wants. And by the way, God just gave you enough time to do what He wants in His plan. If you're super nuked, highly likely that you're doing things that God didn't call you to do. And as I said in this church many times before, God loves you and everybody else has got an amazing plan for your life (laughs) that they want you to do. That can be your Neighbours, it can certainly be your boss. So consider this, because you won't get much chance. The moment you walk out here, you will start to feel the tyranny of the urgent pushing on you again. What important things are being ignored in your life because of the urgent? And what is there in your life that you can change to make room for what you know is deeply a priority? Be specific. Helps me if I write those things down. Let's pray. God, It is only when we come before you that our frenetic activity often is challenged. Help us by your Spirit to give focus and due attention to those things that are important to you. Because Lord, we know that you have a plan for our lives. Help us to discern and resist those things that would rob us of energy and would distract us from your plan. Holy Spirit, help us to be more like your son Jesus, who in three years was able to say, I have completed the work that the Father has set for me to do. Father, may your Spirit's voice and call increase. And maybe the noisy rabble of this world and the hubbub of that fade into the distance. As we spend time with you tomorrow and maybe even this afternoon, reset our compass north that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. And all the people who really wanted that said, Amen.